We receive instruction this morning from the Word of God, the Word of God in which are great doctrines, into which the church has been led to express the, the wholeness of the Word of God. One of the faithful catechisms now for 450 years is the Heidelberg Catechism. It's been a while, we've had special services and so on. We turn once again to our consideration of the truth of our fathers and of the Word of God, as we shall see, Lord's Day 32. We're turning a corner there to the subject of thankfulness and to living thankfully in light of the truth that's been set forth in the Catechism and that's in the Bible. And I pray, beloved, this is for the turning of a corner in our lives, that we might be thankful and more thankful because of God, God with us, and his truth. In your insert in the bulletin or in your Psalter hymnals, you can look. Question 86 asks us this and asks our children this. We're always being as children, learning at the foot of God. Since then, we are delivered. From our misery, merely of grace through Christ, without any merit of ours, why must we still do good works? And the answer is because Christ, having redeemed us and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image, that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct, our gratitude to God for his blessings. And that he may be praised by us, also that every one may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. And this other question, cannot they then be saved who continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives are not converted to God? By no means. For the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then for your understanding that this is biblical, there are those verses cited there because the fathers, of course, want their doctrines to be based on the Bible, the source of truth, and life, the holy life of the people of God. We might be grounded in these truths from the Bible and be assured that what they teach is biblical. We're going to read from the scripture now, and we're going to hear preached from the scripture with the help of this teacher here, this catechism, so that we are furthered along in our life of thanks. Let's turn, first of all, to the Word of God at 2 Samuel 22. We're going to turn to another and a New Testament passage in Romans in chapter 12. The reason that today I'm bringing forth Old Testament and New here is to remind us all that this is the theme of the Bible, this theme of deliverance and thou how we live. It's a beautiful theme. We are this people that's saved to live to God's praise. Notice how David brings this out. King David, 2 Samuel 22. And this is almost word for word Psalm 18. So we sang of this. 
And the occasion was this, Psalm, 2 Samuel 22, Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, and we're just going to read the first 20 verses or so, this, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord. And cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken. Because he was angry, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. He was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. That's as far as we'll read. Read that further if you like, but go to the end of the chapter, 50 and 51, for the response. And this is what we're aiming at here, the response of the delivered king of Israel. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king, and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. Thus far we read in the Old Testament this wonderful song of deliverance and this resolution of thanks. Turn now to the New Testament and to that book which was for the reformers of the Reformation, one of the standard texts, as it were, the book of Romans which was set forth the truth that had to be told against the Roman Catholic lie, the truth of sin, the truth of salvation, the truth of service. And here, Romans 12 is this pitiful, pitiful, pivotal point in the word at Romans 12 of the whole narrative, the whole doctrinal discussion. It's leading to this life of thanks. That's why Paul says, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, 
which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We would consider then, as the Heidelberg Catechism turns a corner and concentrates now on the works that we do because we are saved by Jesus and indwelt by His Spirit. We consider the works of gratitude and holiness, and in particular, if you look ahead in the Catechism, the works of performing the law of God and the work of prayer. Those two uh, contain the rest of the subject matter for the Catechism, Lord's Day 32 through 52, the great portion of our thankful lives. So we want to consider thanks, and we want to consider the life of thanks. But now in light of this grand expression of thanks in the Bible, the therefores. We've talked about that in our house visitation. There's a whole great truth in the body of Ephesians. And Ephesians 4 begins, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you would walk worthy of your calling. Here there's a therefore, another instance of a conclusion that's made for the delivered man, the delivered woman, the delivered church. David made it long ago. Paul made it. And all God's people, they make it too. The conclusion, which is a resolution. My God is God. I'm going to live unto him. My God is my father. I'm going to be a son and a daughter of God. So let's consider this therefore. And first of all, we want to consider what is. What is there? And that the Christian... um, Religion is is known for this. There's something there, which is the root of our life and the foundation of our life. And then we want to consider our life of thanks as something that ought to be. What is really there and then what ought to be. These are both in that word, therefore. And then finally, we want to consider the father and the sons that are because of this wonderful reality of God. So what is there in Christianity? That really is what the Heidelberg Catechism is responding to. You can't get Lord's Day 32 and all the way to 52. You can't get anything right in life unless you understand that your life is a response to something prior to you and mine is a response uh, to something prior to me, something that is. This is a very important first point in our lives of thankfulness. A lot of uh, evangelicals, I suppose, and and I've, I've listened to lots of them, they start with what ought to be, maybe, or they're maybe a little iffy about what is. The Christian religion... The faith of our fathers starts with a what is, a what is. Well, what is? What is for Christianity? Well, God is. That's the truth. That's the truth of Christianity. God. This is the truth, of course, everyone would say, even even, 
uh, false religionists, but in many a Christian church. But this is God revealed in the Bible as well as creation that we're talking about here. We're responding to God, to God, the God who made heaven and earth and all that is in them, the God of a counsel before creation, an eternal will, revealing who he is and what he delights in, revealing his plan, but not such that he was like a human when he made a plan, so he had to figure this out and then maybe erase something and start over again because that wasn't good enough. Not some God who had a plan and started executing it, and then the things that were planned, they turned against him, and so he had to cross that out too. That didn't work. He's the God of a divine plan. This God who's perfect in what he plans and therefore what he does according to this plan or the counsel of his will, as Ephesians says. He does everything according to that perfect plan. He knows the end from the beginning, and he's working all things to perform his plan so that the divine architect of this whole universe is having a finished product at the end exactly what he planned it to be. We speak of the sovereignty of God. He's king. He's king over everything in power. And he loves the church. He loves the apple of his eyes. The prophet says we are. The apple of his eye, that thing that needs protection. And he sends Jesus for that. That's our God who is. And this is what the catechism and the whole Bible is speaking of. The Old Testament David was speaking, uh, King David was speaking of this deliverance from enemies all around the place and God coming down and moving heaven and earth to save his anointed one. And there's the salvation then that was, that was promised then to which they look forward to and it was typified in salvation from Canaanites and Perizzites and Hivites and, and all their own sins and deliverance into the land of God, the land of promise, the milk and honey land, the land of Canaan, all a picture of how we're delivered from sin and unto God and to the fellowship of God in the land called the kingdom of heaven today. It's all there. What's there is the fact that we had to be delivered from sin and the first part of the catechism, something people don't like to dwell on so much, is that our sins are great, very, very great, and they need a great deliverer. Our sins are so great that born in Adam we are and born dead in sins. The truth of total depravity is something we have to hold on to, beloved, we're born totally dead in our sins. We cannot lift a finger. We cannot breathe a sigh towards God. We cannot will anything that would be pleasing to God. We cannot make a move. Dead men don't move. We're like those corpses even in Israel, in Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. That's who we are. There has to be the word not only of God spoken by the prophet, but the wind the Holy Spirit with the word so that the words that are spoken are spirit and are life. We cannot do a thing to resurrect ourselves. But God does, and that's the main part of the catechism up to now. 
sin only a few Lord's days, but we got to get it right. And then we certainly have to get the mediator right. And the catechism, I trust you believe this, has had it right. Maybe some of the expressions of the Heidelberg Catechism are not what you would say or what we would say even 450 years after they were penned. But there's truth there that I trust you believe is a rock, the truth of Jesus. And the setting forth of the truth that he is the perfect mediator because he's God and because he's man and because he's the perfect God and he's the perfect man. This is the truth of the Jesus of the Bible. That's what's there, not only in the catechism, and not only ours, by the way, but every faithful creed of the church has it right about Jesus. It's in the Bible. David points to God, the Savior, who's over and who comes down. And he roars like a lion. And yet he would save David, the sinner, because he's also the lamb, and this is Jesus. We know that. Jesus, so it's a, it's a blessing to, to, to preach to a mature congregation that gets that, but maybe there's someone listening. They need to know Jesus, the perfect God, the truth of Jesus, the perfect God who comes down, who condescends, and it's an act of condescension and coming down which doesn't, Negate his divinity or compromising that he really is God. It's been a heresy of the church or of uh, those outside of the church for ages. Well, something happens when God comes down, he becomes degoded. He's only partially God or he's only partially man. The beauty of the creeds of the church is that, are that they don't try to smooth over all the difficulties of Christianity. How can God be God and good and allow evil? And and how can God be man and still be God in all of these tough things? The faithful creed, the faith of our fathers is faithful to the word. That's a revelation of God who's above and who comes to be with us and who loves us. And you might not figure it out. Believe only and bow. Beautiful. And it's all been there, the great mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh, this this thing that is, this thing that is this truth, this God who is. And the wonderful thing about the, the, uh, the response of the believer is that not only is God true, and that's true, but his salvation is is it is and god reveals that he is he reveals himself of the god of salvation and that he so commands salvation for us and in us that it will be it is it's true so what the catechism is reminding us is of the great fundamentals of god saving sinners to be with them And of this truth somehow that comes into us. So that there's an absolute necessity, divine necessity. I say that in the biblical sense of the word. That we do good. 
in response to the God who is good. Look at that. The catechism deals with a question that was very, very important at the time of the Reformation, ought to be so now. Since then we're delivered by grace. Why must we still do good works? The great slander of the Roman Catholics also today, it is, is that you Protestants, you say God is everything. And Calvin, he was God intoxicated. He was just drunk on God. Give all the glory to God. What about something for man? And they'll say what happens and what's happened since Protestantdom broke from Roman Catholicism dumb is that you become a bunch of renegades. Look at you. Look at your preachers. They preach freedom. They preach thankfulness that doesn't merit anything. How can you have a church at the end of the day? Oh, you might dress up, but you don't do penance. And you don't bow to the Pope and you don't honor Mary as you should. This is the Roman Catholic speaking. The Reformers followed the Bible and the creeds of the Reformation follow the Bible. It's simply because God is God and grace is divine and mercy is mercy. That's why there must be a must. See, before even... We ought to do good works. The wonderful truth of the gospel is there will be good works. Why? There will be that we do good works if we are saved by God in Jesus Christ and truly believers. Why? Exactly because of the God and the grace that is and that are for us. Therefore, there will be in us. There's an inevitability a divine necessity, a divine working, put it that way, to avoid the language of necessity and philosophy and so on, a divine, wonderful truth that happens to us and transforms us. Note how the catechism reminds us of this. Why must we still do good works? Well, because of Christ. Having redeemed us, and delivered us by his blood, he also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image. Why are there good works among the people of God? The gospel is because of God. It's about what he does, what he initiates, what he's accomplished, and now what he's applying and how he's doing it. And so the, the catechism is getting into here uh, the, the thing that's built on the foundation of the blood of Jesus and saying it's built on the foundation. We're not now going to another thing. God does his work and now we do our part. There's another foundation maybe. No, never leave the foundation of the truth of God and grace in Jesus Christ and of that now renewal that occurs within us so that we're new creatures, for example, that's a, what I would call the therefore of the is. Because of who God is and what he does, not only for us, but also in us, there is this reality of good in us, good works. Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins. 
Verses 8 through 10, by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. For we are his workmanship. That's a therefore, a conclusion that simply happens as a result of the, the God who is. Simply, I say that right now. It's not so simple. But clearly and effectually happens exactly because the God who's begun the good work in us perfects it. He continues working. Jesus Christ who died for us is risen for us and he's praying for us and he sends the spirit upon us and the grace upon us. He breathes into the valley of the dry bones his breath from the four winds. He moves heaven and earth to conquer the enemies that would keep the people of God down and pervert them. Especially does he like to make out of the reform reformed perverts. The devil, that is. But God says, no. They're mine. And thus the glory is given to the blood once again. The blood of Jesus shed for sinners, not shed in vain. He rose from the dead now, says, here's the gift of my crucifixion, my spirit, faith, life in him. It's impossible. We are joined to Jesus Christ. And I've listed some text in your your bulletin for that. So that, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, and old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if you're in Christ, if you're chosen in Christ and given faith in Christ, you're new, and you have nothing to do with that. It's the God who renews, who's made you new, and there it is, the voila of grace. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Just to name one other passage here. It's amazing how in another, from another angle, the inevitability of our doing good works, the necessity, the divine gospel truth of grace and its fruits come out. Second Timothy or Titus 2, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And here's what happens when the grace of God appears to all men teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then this, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works, as clearly as Jesus is special. He makes a special people. And he does this through pedagogy, divine grace teaching us. That's what happens in this congregation too. Yours truly isn't teaching you, not first of all, God is. Right here, and me. We're all in the school of Christ together, and grace is the teacher Grace teaches us this and this and that. 
and teaches us that Jesus is special, so now you are this special workmanship of his. And it's from election, you see, to glorification, everything in between, to begin and the end and all of the different chapters of our life. It's all about the special work being specialized the school of Christ, as we would show forth the good work of God, who is. Now, before I move on to the second point, just this. We're talking about what is. And I know you can think about these things. Here's what is. And we need to talk about the fact that the world doesn't know about this. That is, the world in darkness, not light, darkness. The still totally depraved world where there's none righteous, no, not one. They kill babies, not only. They kill the truth. And they hold it under in unrighteousness. This is this world. Imagine that. Our Father's world become this perverse people that denies the truth. And the fundamental thing they're denying is the reality of God, the reality of the gospel. You know, they're changing the vocabulary in fundamental ways, not only about pronouns and how these and these and whatever now indicate whatever you want to be, but they're changing, well, thing like a fundamental verb called to be, used to be that to be uh, was something that indicated there are things that are. And even the fundamental of all the fundamental things that are, there is a God who is. And now they've changed the verb. Here's what it is. To be has come to me. To me. That's it. No longer a God who is, I'm God or you're God. It's up to me to determine reality. And it's for me that my reality can change. In fact, the Christian reality, or at least what they say is reality, that's got to change because it's too exclusive. And it doesn't tolerate other forms of being and other, other forms of light and other forms of lifestyle. You see the fundamental problem. People don't have God straight, they don't want God to be the God he is, and so they change the words. They're doing this in the public schools, they're doing this in the media's leading the way, the charge, and the country is more and more divided, used to be more united because there were more Christians and there was more semblance of the faith of pilgrim fathers in the land, and now it's just Everyone for himself. To me. And don't say there's a possibility not to me. To me. And then you can say to you, to me. So there's a lot of reality here. Depends how you look on it. Beloved, do you believe the God who is? Come to grips with that. Let's do that as a congregation. We're turning the corner here, 
And we're supposed to be responding. And it's all vitally connected to the God who is, the gospel that is, the good work of God that is and now in us is and is to be displayed and is displayed before it even is to be displayed and ought to be displayed. It is displayed. How will that be? That we will understand that all that we ought to be is because God is God. We'll preach it. We'll teach it to our children. And fathers will teach it to their sons and daughters. What is? We need to do a lot of believing, don't we? There has to be a lot of believing. Thank God that that's part of the work of God. He works in us faith to believe. To see beyond the sea, S-E-A. See beyond the beautiful springtime. To hear beyond the birds and the cacophony of this world. Faith. Faith. That's what is. Now there's a what ought to be. You say, Domini, how can there be a, a truth that is and now there's an ought? That's what... In other words, how can there be a, a responsibility with that? And again, we're back to the, the age-old objection. How, you, you're teaching what is, and, and now, now we can fall asleep? Is that what you're saying? You've just said God is, and that's the important thing. Are you going to stop this sermon now? Oh, beloved, I want to commend to your attention that that wouldn't be a bad thing. Not every sermon in the Bible ends with the now this. Now this is what you ought to do. Not every section of the Bible, not every parable ends with a this is what you ought to do. A lot of it is just this is what is. Amen. And the Holy Spirit takes the is and takes the truth. and works in you for you to respond. And say, yes, therefore. That's why, be careful when you say, Domini, Domini, minister, you got to be more practical. Okay, take it. But sometimes the most practical sermons are the most doctrinal. Just preach God and say, amen. Let the people go. Fill with the truth of God. Do we believe the power of the word? This is what we preach in this pulpit, the power of the word itself. God working through it. This is what ought to be. And that leads into this whole subject of what ought to be. Salvation, God has said, is not going to be automatic. See, there's a necessity that's just like this philosophical, yo, it is what it is. Not sure we should be saying that. 
It is what it is in Christianity. God is who he is. And that's true for us too. We are what we are by the grace of God. That's what Paul says. I am to be, the verb to be. I am what I am by the grace of God. He'll say that. And now, that apostle of predestination and of divine sovereignty of salvation, it's not of him that wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. He beseeches people, Romans 12, by the mercies of God that they might do something in response. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, according to everything I've spoken in Romans 1 through 11, that you would now present your bodies a thank offering to God, present your bodies to God a reasonable service, a logikos service, a word-centered service and worship to God. So what God has done is there first. And now what we ought to do is there second, closely behind what's first. What's there is God. What's therefore is God's people acting as they are and ought to be. There needs to be this incentive. God doesn't work in us to be machines. Or as the Dutch used to say, he doesn't pull us to California in a Pullman sleeper car. We wake up and, ha, it's heaven. Maybe it would be a different state would be heaven. But we're not asleep. That's how God works. There's a divine, absolute reality of grace. But God works in us, doesn't he? Both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And the idea is that not he's willing and doing there, but we are. He works in us, you and me, so that I desire God and, and I do the things of God which are pleasing to him. Very, very important part of Christianity. The Canons of Dort reminds us that God, by even threats and warnings and admonitions, often through elders and pastors and fathers, earthly fathers, he so preserves us in holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. There's an ought that's very important. There's sovereignty, there's responsibility, there's deliverance, and there's being delivered. And there is God who won on Calvary, and there is the great wrestling match of Jacob with God himself. And with himself, the good that I would I do not, the evil that I would not that I do, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Romans 7, last part. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the spirit, but af not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Romans 8. Then finally, after Romans 8, at the end, you're preserved. Nothing shall be against you. That's how it works, isn't it? See, God wants lovers, not diesel engines, not sleepers, 
And that we're chosen does not mean we're the frozen chosen. You know that. We are alive. We make choices every day. I hope you understand that. Think of the God who's made a choice, who's this wonderful God of the sovereign will, but also think of the choices you've got to make and act upon that are good and holy. So we say that to you, and I say that to myself. What are the choices? What's the thing you can do today? Could be that you don't ask it, and you shouldn't even be asking it because it's right in front of you. Get up and go to work. Get up, make the bed. Don't think about that. Do it. You know that's right. But maybe. There's a lot of other choices you've got to think about. I don't know. What work should I do? I'm not really happy at work here. Who should I marry? All these things. How should I be a dad? The best dad. Got to love this girl. Love this guy. I can understand this girl, this guy. And oh, maybe God will say, here's how you love your children. Love your wife, first of all. And your children will see what love is. You love your wife. Happy Father's Day ought to be Happy Husband's Day. What ought to be? We have this flesh. We have this world. They're all against us. This is why there's an ought. And the Catechism reminds us, too, that here's why we must do good works. It has to do with what we do and what we desire, that we may testify by the whole of our conduct, our gratitude to God for his blessings. That's one purpose. Working in us is God to, to want to do that. And that he may be praised by us, not just automatically, but because I say hallelujah. Sometimes in church. And also that everyone may be assured of himself, of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. Is, is that what moves you? See, here's the, the catechism moving into personal responsibility. This is why we are redeemed. This is why the shadows are no more, and there's no 50 shades of gray. There's black and there's white. This is it. This is why you're standing, as we'll see tonight, at the shore of a Red Sea, not just to stand there, but to go forward into it, no matter how hard it is and how impossible it seems. Because God's grace is going to get the glory, and you're going to be assured of God the more you step into that Red Sea every single time. And the whole world's going to know this is amazing this God who parts the Red Sea and then who compels the people willingly to walk right into it. This God who says, preach the word, and there they do it, and they don't draw the following that everybody else seems to be doing. And they're just preaching Christ and Him crucified and gathering a people to the God who is and the truth who is, and to the, not to the programs that they have. Or the lattes in the north, but to the word of God. What ought to be? What ought to be? You see, 
Even as the world says the verb is not now to be, but it's to me. So with regard to what ought to be, they'll say it's not what ought to be anymore. It's what I want it to be. That's what matters. What I want it to I create my reality. Born a woman, I want to be a man. Born a man, I want to be a woman. Eh, in the 200-yard backstroke. But I can be a woman and win. Nonsense. Foolishness. And worse is, God says this, or that old preacher used to say this, my parents used to say this, but I, and this is what we ought to be. There's Ten Commandments. I'm saying, no, 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 no. What ought to be is just as it was in the garden before this mess. We get to choose to be like God and to tell others when we're getting up in the morning We get to choose our own morality. Well, what a mess. What a mess. It's, it's no wonder the church is confused as well. What ought we to be, it says. Let's forget the Bible for a minute. That's, that's outdated. What ought we to be? I know. We'll go into the community. Let's go to Comstock Park and take a poll. What do you want in a church? What do you want? And let's go even to the poor and to the, the lowly and, and to the, you know, the dilapidated houses maybe because we, we want to be as Jesus who goes into the world. We're going to ask him, what do you want in the church? And then we're going to make a list and you want this and this and then our church is going to look like that. Imagine if we did that. We'd be on our way out the door, wouldn't we? After only a year in this building, a lot of you would. I would. The elders allowed that, wanted that. A church of the poles. A church of the opinions of men where there's none righteous, no, not one, and no one who has a clue about true worship and doesn't want to know either because then they might even approach God. And they don't want to do that. Beloved, thank God for the word of God that tells us what ought to be and the song we should sing. And it's not just me, 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 me. Do, re, me. We end there. It's all the notes on the scale to the glory of God who gives us the song. Final point, fathers and sons that are. And here again, we, we vie for the truth in a family that doesn't know truth so often through their not being fathers there in a home. What a broken world. You know why there's all these abortions and why there's such confusion in society about basic things. You know why? A little guy at 12 years old goes out in the street and he's just, he's, he's, there's only a single mom in his home. Well, because he needs some acceptance somewhere, he's going to find it among the gangs. 
making money, being happy in those newfound friends. And we have to preach. We have to preach. God is a father. Nobody knows what father is anymore. God is father. Not just of creation, but of of children. He loves them. They love him. And we preach that. And we preach in a church world where there's no church fathers anymore. See, the, the roots of truth, if there's no truth, there's no roots either. So why go back? Just be now, man. Man. He's telling. Man. Let's be real. Uh, get with it. People have changed, and we need to change and to accommodate in, in all of these things. And as we're turning a corner into thankfulness, and thankfulness would be maybe that we, we get to just be everything to all men, and not just as Paul says it. The mantra now is basically be nothing to all men, that you can please them. And influence people, make friends in the church too. Beloved, I, I want to encourage fatherhood this morning in the last few minutes here. Because we're, we're dealing with the, the God who's father. So very important that we understand that as fathers, we are instruments of God to teach truth. And when there's not that, that person who's supposed to be a father is an instrument that's abandoned truth and that's leaving it up to everyone else to decide, maybe, whatever. But fathers, good ones. Here's an example we have. God, our Father. My wife was listening to something today, and I share that with you uh, the other day about a Father's Day sermon. Very compelling God the Father and God the Son have a relationship, don't they? They're they're perfect and they're the Trinity union. I and my Father are one, he says, Jesus. And he wants us to be as united as they are in the Trinity, Father and Son. And so he takes us into that fellowship, not into his divinity, but into that fellowship so that we know something of the family of God. And you know how God the Father um, behaved toward his son when the son came to the earth? Well, he was there for every significant moment in the life of the son, wasn't he? He was there all the time. But in certain times, he spoke in big ways, like, for example, at the birth, he sent the angels to herald the birth of the son, and hark, they sang, glory to the newborn king. I was father there. That's my son. The baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Another time in John chapter 12, 23 and following, you don't have time to read it. Jesus' soul was troubled. Now is the hour come. He'd be the grain of wheat that would fall to the earth and die so that there might be resurrection. At that time, father was there encouraging the son and saying, I have glorified your name and I will glorify it. 
Press on, son. Then at the Mount of Transfiguration, once again, before James and John and Peter and Moses and Elijah, Jesus, shining in his glory, is shown, and God says, this is my beloved son, hear him. So many words. That's what he did. And that's what fathers ought to do, aren't they? Really? If that's the, the divine paradigm, we can say that. The example of what it is to be a father, you be there for your children. And you be there with the truth, and you be there loving them and caring for them and playing games with them and being high and being low, which is what God is. Letting them hop around in your stomach, playing around, sometimes, of course, emphasizing the other aspect of God the fatherhood. Being there. Now, now, son. Now, now, daughter. We don't do that. And that's an example, too, that we follow. It was one time that God was not encouraging his son. Can I say that? I'm going to dare to say that. There was one time when God was not there for his son. I was on the cross. I'm going to say more about that, but one time when the son could only say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? He didn't know the father anymore. The light was not on at the house. He wanted to come back from hell itself and all was darkness and why, you know, the sons bearing the iniquity of us all and the wrath of God for that. There cannot be any mitigation of the punishment because holiness and justice would be satisfied. That's God. But of course we know. Behind the darkness and after the darkness of the cross, oh yes, God the Father's there. And at no other time was he more pleased with his son than when his son was being killed and executed for the sake of those many sons and daughters for whom he died. And so at the end, Jesus can say, Father again, Father into thy hands I commend my spirit. Well, that reveals to us the righteousness that fathers have to have, doesn't it, men? It's not all fun and games, is it? It's not all the fact that the sons respond well. There has to be a darkness that is a, a wrathfulness, an anger that reflects the anger of God, not sinfully, not in abuse, but in love and charity, but firmness and consistency. There's the example we have in the church as well. So many other things to be said, but it's to encourage the therefore. That's what yours truly would say to you. Truth is there. It's here. And it's in you. I know that. We know that. Now therefore, go forth in thanks. And happy Father's Day, blessed Father's Day, every day. Amen. Thanks, Lord, for being our God and our Father. Thanks for such encouragement in truth and what is and what ought to be through your own fatherhood of us and oftentimes as represented here, through fathers in our homes and mothers and church fathers and the truth of the fathers, 
What a great God of these means that you use. We're thankful, Lord. We pray to live the thankful life. May this congregation be elevated in its spirits, turn to the word of God once again. May the psalmist David, who sang the psalms of praise to God for deliverance and to the Apostle Paul himself and all the other human instruments of your divine word, they all sang the same thing. The theme of thanks for the great God worthy of our praise. Amen.